Welcome and thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. I'm Michal Mahuna. Check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website on www.thehealthzoneshow.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Hellstone Show delivered to your inbox every week, and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show, or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehellstoneshow.com. Today I'm talking with psychologist and family therapist, Dr. Colm O'Connor. Good afternoon, Colm. How are you? I'm well, Michal. How are you doing? Very good, Colm. Tell me, Colm, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? Well, I suppose professionally I'm a psychologist and I work at the Cork Marriage Counseling Centre in Cork. Um, do a lot of work with families and couples, um, assessments of children, assessments for courts, uh, couples therapy, things like that. So that's the professional side of it. But the, the personal side of it, I suppose, is I'm... I'm married and I'm a father of three children and I'm a man who's struggling with life and doing my best to try and make my way in the world so the profession sometimes can get in the way and I try to emphasize my humanity and being an expert doesn't mean life is any easier so I still I struggle just like everybody else. How do you actually get into this type of work? Uh, gee that's a long story that goes way back to when I left UCC back in 1982 where I did my master's in psychology and I think around that time I wanted to get more professional training but there wasn't much available in Ireland at the time so decided I'd head off to Chicago which I did and headed off to Lyona University where I studied for a couple of years and then one thing led to another really as, as, as happens in life and did my training in psychotherapy at Lutheran General Hospital in Chicago and then went on to do further postgraduate degree and worked as a therapist, counsellor etc and then I came back here to Ireland then in 1990 and took up a post here with the Cork and Ross Family Centre as a psychologist. So I've been here since, which is 25 years this year. So retirement is beginning to loom over the hill, so time moves quickly. What is the definition of a happy and healthy relationship? That's a very difficult question, because definitions really try to condense a great deal of complexity into something simple. So my initial answer is I actually don't know, but I could think one out a little bit with you, which would be, I think one of the things that would characterize a healthy and functioning relationship would be a relationship where where both people want the other person to be the best person that they can be. And that kind of trait uh, is one that values the virtues of, of freedom and understands how control can interfere with that. So in many ways, I think in my work with couples, freedom is an essential virtue and it's something that's at the heart of humanity going down the ages in terms of culture and society but it happens in the family home as well so if you can give somebody the freedom to be the person they're meant to be and not resort to control as a mechanism to try to dominate them or try to get them to do what you want then you're kind of somewhere along the road you know so finding that balance between freedom and control is essential but you see that too between parents and children that the real challenge of being a parent is trying to influence your children without controlling them and how to encourage them to be free while also considering their their safety in the world you know and the same in an intimate relationship which would be it's very difficult when your partner is behaving in ways that you don't like or you want them to be different and how to measure the way you relate to them in such a way that they're still allowed to be different than you still allowed to disagree with you still allowed to argue with you and your own self-esteem is not at stake so I suppose the self-esteem part in it too would be important that you also have a certain inner confidence in yourself to be true to yourself without needing to exert pressure on another person to conform with that. So a lot of the difficulties we come across in, in relationships would really be about control, freedom, abuse and how all those things are handled, you know. There's a lot more I could say about relationships, but that's probably suffice. And do you think, Colm, that control stops people from actually having those healthy relationships? It would. I think the urge to control is a human one. It's universal. I think when we're born into the world, we have some uh, urge in ourselves to try to manage the world that's around us. And I think the need to control can get into relationships too. And if that kind of crosses the threshold from influence to trying to control, to trying to abuse, to trying to dominate, then the relationship is in trouble. 
So, um, as I said, finding that balance is critical, you know. And it's funny, I, I find it fascinating that an intimate relationship, what I experience in the small room of my consulting room, mirrors also what's happening in the world today, you know. So the issues of control and freedom are at the heart of what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in Syria and places like that with refugees. It's all about freedom and control and, and righteousness and fundamentalism is driven by a need to control other people to control people's beliefs and the urge to freedom as a human one as well which which tries to escape that and tries to get away from it so you see these mass exodus of refugees coming out of Syria looking for freedom because they're responding to control so at the larger social level and universal level you have the same dynamics but the same thing happens in the kitchens and living rooms of Ireland all over the place where children and parents and spouses and partners are struggling with freedom and control so you tell a six-year-old child you can't have crisps before dinner and he says why not and he's immediately wanting to be in control of his own life and trying to resist control so in every little intimate interaction the issues of control freedom closeness and distance are played out you know where does this control come from the need for control comes from the existential if i can use a big word at the at the core of existence we're born into a life that we've no control over. We have no control over our ultimate destiny, which is to age and die. We also have only little control over what happens to us in life. And so we're, we're largely helpless kinds of beings in the, in the world. And as a result of that helplessness, we, the, the urge to control things around us gets exaggerated. Um, so as I say it's a drive in the child and the person and the relationship in societies and cultures but it comes from existence itself so you kind of as, as uh, I think Sartre said you're kind of thrown up on the beach of life and you have to make your way and you have to try and master it in some way and you do it well if you're able to balance control with freedom if you lose your way you become arrogant you become abusive you become dominating or if a culture or society loses its way it becomes fundamentalist and righteous and if you can find the balance between the fact that you want to control things but you can't and you can inhabit the vulnerability of living then you're going to be somewhat okay you know and would this control would it be associated with the ego column the ego it yeah it, it probably would in a sense of like freud's idea of the ego would have, would have been the executive of the personality who tries to manage things and control things so it's only a small part of the person but it can get bigger than it should be and I think when the ego or the need to control begins to override everything, as I say, then you're in trouble. And I think what's happening, as I say, in Syria and Iraq and places like that would be fundamentalism is the extreme form of control. That would be the assumption that I or we are right and anybody who disagrees with us is wrong and therefore needs to be either eliminated or converted into that way of being. So control, control in, its, in its extreme form is a flight from the vulnerability of life itself and I think all the great people down the ages have been able to stand in the middle of life and acknowledge that they are vulnerable and afraid and unsure and at the same time still try to do what is right and what is good you know so people like Gandhi or Mandela or uh, Mother Teresa all these people would have acknowledged vulnerability as one of the uh, the key elements of life and living if you don't acknowledge vulnerability then you become righteous and fundamentalist and then you're on the path to destruction at home and in the planet. With this vulnerability, there's probably like a lot of fear around that as well. What would you think is man's greatest fear? Man's greatest fear is death. And death ultimately is powerlessness and helplessness. So that the terror of death rumbles underneath everything. And humanity has can go two ways. One is to deny it. And if you deny your ultimate helplessness in the world then you move in the direction, as I said, of righteousness and control. That's the way to respond to it. If you can inhabit it, if you can be someone who says, I am afraid and that's part of who I am, and, and resist the temptation to control or dominate others and, uh, and are able to be vulnerable in the world and at the same time exercise influence and exercise modesty and exercise respect and exercise a sense of the sacred in the world, then you're going in the direction of, as I say, all the great people down through history. It reminds me of a quote I heard, I think, a while ago now at this stage. It said that the minute you embrace death, you start living. Would you think this is true? I, th I think so. I think so. 
and it's be able to kind of walk it's be able to embrace it and acknowledge that it's uh, inevitable and that your helplessness is inevitable and that that brings forth your humanity and my most reaching ri recent writings really are about that which would be our ability to acknowledge our helplessness and our vulnerability is what makes us human and i think if you go back to the dawn of consciousness if you go if you can think back to the time when humanity first woke up to the fact that he or she existed some tribe walking across the plains of Africa, somebody suddenly became aware that they exist. That would have been the first moment of self-consciousness. And with that sense of existence came its counterpoint, which which was, I exist and I'm, I'm, I, I'm aware that I won't exist. I'm aware that I'll, I will die. So in all the ancient cultures, burial rituals were an essential part of humanity's growth and development. But the, the, the magnificent thing about humanity and people is that if you live in reality, what you what you what you have to deal with is the fact that you're powerless, you're helpless, you're decaying, and you're going to die, and you're largely insignificant in the cosmos. Yet humanity took that reality on board and more or less said, "To hell with that." Humanity did this extraordinary thing and said, "If that's reality, I'm going to do something about it." And that became the birth of art, music, literature, and culture and all those things that make us what we are, which are a response to a reality that, if taken literally, is too much, you know? Going back to the relationship side of things, what would you regard as being the purpose of a relationship? Purpose of a relationship? God, these are big questions. Um, I think at a very basic level, the purpose of a relationship is to find solace and safety and hope in the world. I think uh, belonging and community and being together have become one of the key characteristics of humanity as a species. So we, we've, we have two things going for us. One would be our intelligence, but the other would be our sociability, and that we work together. And even though we talk about the world, and you look out there, and you, you listen to the news, and you hear all those bad things happening, in reality, the world is... Civilization is extraordinary. You get in your car, and you drive anywhere down the street. Everybody's cooperating. Everybody is going with the traffic lights, everybody's going with the green and the yellow light, everybody goes into shops, waits and queues. All of civilization is more or less cooperating because we're in relationship. And that relationship really is what sustains us in the world and, and buffers us from, I think, the more existential things in life, like as we were talking about, death and helplessness and uh, our, our sense of isolation in the world so it's a way of finding solace and comfort and also has evolved into the evolutionary way for the species to survive so uh, on our own we don't survive so it's in relationship and reproduction and all those things so it's kind of built into our DNA as well so that's kind of getting to the very basic need we all have for belonging and connection um, and then how that materialises it then in everyday life that gets into the nuts and bolts of life and living and do you think in your own experience that this is achieved in say intimate relationships especially say like marriage relationships absolutely yeah I, I, I think when I work with couples couples will come in and they'll be arguing or having uh, conflicts about everything you know whether it's money or finances or parenting or sex or all those kinds of things and I like to dig deeper with people and it would be when you strip away all the things you fight about what is it that people are in the relationship for? Why are they with that person? Why do they choose to continue to be with that person? And what emerges is then are, are much deeper needs, which would be um, the need for connection, the need for to cope with isolation, and the sense of love that actually gets buried underneath all the, if you, if you excuse my French, the shit of living. Underneath it, there can be a great deal of love that is, gets lost, you know? So I find people coming into my office or leaning over a counter outside a man will be in bits and he'll be in tears because he's lost his wife who's decided to leave him and he suddenly realizes on her departing that she has meant everything to him that she has been his life but he's never been able to acknowledge it or even recognize it and it's only in the going that it comes to the surface so buried underneath a lot of the squabbling and struggles of life there can often be a deep love and need for the other person that takes vulnerability to be able to acknowledge and if people can get past that and that's part of the work I do with couples is getting past that shield that people have around them to acknowledge the vulnerability and the need things like that can begin to be expressed and people become like children so this is my office here and people begin to break down and they cry and they they plead and they express very basic wants 
and all the complexity of life gets stripped away and so those basic needs for connection and to cope with isolation and to share love emerge. So in regard to what you're saying there, Colm, going back to those needs, how do we define those needs in a relationship and when do those needs into the territory where the relationship becomes a codependent relationship or not? I suppose there's always an element of codependency. Codependency, if people don't understand it, would be the, the when you need the other person to be a certain way in order to be happy yourself, or the way I define it would be when your happiness is dependent on somebody else's happiness or somebody else being a certain kind of a way, you know. But the basic needs we have in relationships would be, we we have four basic needs. One would be the need for uh, control and influence. We need to feel that uh, we matter. So like if you say something to your wife or to your husband, you need to feel that it, it's uh, recognized and accepted. So you need to feel that you matter. You need to feel safe and protected. So in a relationship, you need also to have a certain sense of safety. When you're coming in your front door at home at the end of the day, you need to have a feeling that this is a safe place that I'm returning to. You also need affection. You need somebody who shows affection to you because at a very basic level, you need that too. That is that somebody wants you. So that it comes into the area of sexuality and also in terms of just life itself. That somebody wants you is a profound and powerful thing to, to experience and something that's necessary. We also need encouragement, that is, we need people to encourage us. So in any relationship, you need somebody who's able to say, go on, go for it, I'm behind you. Or you need to feel that, that somebody has your back and that, they, as I said earlier, they want you to be the person that you're meant to be, you know, and that can be essential. And the last thing you need, I said four, was actually five, the last thing you need is freedom, that is, you need to be emancipated, so you need a sense of freedom and possibility that you're not captive or isolated in the relationship or that the relationship doesn't become a trap. In some relationships, you, people can get smothered or they can get overwhelmed or they might need to do something for themselves and they just feel they can't out of guilt and all that kind of thing. So you need the freedom as well, you know. So they'd be the kind of currencies of a, of a healthy relationship or a functioning relationship and would be the basic ingredients. How does that tie in with codependency then, Colm? I'll have to take my way into that. Like codependency is where you're dependent on the other person being a certain way in order for you to be happy in the world or for you to be yourself. So it's a term that emerged in the context of addictions, particularly where a person was married to or in relation to somebody who was addicted and the, the carer then became kind of indirectly or unconsciously invested in the illness themselves and somehow they began to need the other person in that kind of way, you know. So I suppose that we all have a, st a streak of codependency. I'd be con conscious of it myself, you know, if I'm at home and my daughter isn't happy or my wife isn't happy or there's something going on, my own w well-being gets becomes a little bit unsettled and I want to make it right. And that's a good reflex, that's a loving reflex. But you can imagine if that gets too much, then the person loses their own stability and happiness. And so in an abusive relationship, for example, if you're married to an abusive partner or an abusive husband, um, if he's in bad humour all the time, then you're always unhappy or you're always distressed, you know. It takes a lot of kind of self-control and a lot of, a lot of being able to establish a certain distance to be able to hold on to yourself while another person is struggling, you know. That's, that's not easy, you know, and I suppose... Uh, you'd find I find it coming across too uh, like a, a dilemma a lot of people would experience in relationships would be living for their children, and by and large it's a great virtue to to uh, at times be able to surrender your life and put the needs of your children ahead of you, but you can also become codependent on your children too, where their lives become more important than your own, you know, and that becomes a difficult struggle. I remember Joseph Campbell quoting, I remember sitting next to somebody in a restaurant and he heard a father saying to a daughter, you know, I've never done anything in my life for myself. Everything I've done has been for you. And he said, what a very sad thing, in the sense that there was a man who was sacrificing his life and also conscious of how much he gave, on, gave up. And in some way, um, an inheritance, the inheritance, the inheritance of an unlived life isn't really one you should give to your children, you know might it not have been better for that father to be able to say you I've given almost everything to you but also I've held on to myself I've pursued some of my passions and you've seen me enjoy my art or my sport or my relationships with other people so the child learns not by the sacrifice of the parent but also by observing how the parent functions in the world you know 
I remember reading a novel by Niall Williams, I think it starts in the first chapter, where Dad arrived home one day to his wife and children. He said, I'm off. I'm going to be an artist and live in Galway. And that was the beginning of the book. And a part of me said, you know, fair play to him at one level. Now, the desolation left behind is another thing, but it's like holding on to one's own self is a real challenge in life, you know. So true, Colum. You mentioned about five needs there. Do you think as individuals going into relationships and when we're in that relationship situation that we have an inability to actually communicate those needs to our partners? We do, and we we do. And I think what happens then would be most of us end up expressing those things indirectly because to express them directly requires uh, a level of vulnerability that's hard to display. So passive communication, so we all, we all do it, you know, like you're, you're kind of the husband and wife, what's wrong with you? Nothing, there's something wrong with you. So there's a, there's a mood, or there's something unsatisfied, but it's hard to give expression to it, you know. And it's also hard to claim certain things as well. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to be a transparent person, you know. And I think the best thing we can do very often is repair and recover from the errors that we make, you know. So... The art of apology is, is, is great in life, but to be able to... Uh, they Actually, they did some fascinating research about the communication between mothers and children when they're born, and what they discovered was in, in a healthy relationship, it's characterized by more miscommunication than communication. So a mother goes to a child that's crying and she says, what's wrong? And she can't figure it out. And or maybe he's hungry and tries, the, no, it's not the hunger. Maybe it's just the way the sitting position knows. And then, oh, it's, it's the it's the nappy. But there's a back and forth between the mother and the child that's, that's more miscommunication than direct. The, the, the mother doesn't get it right, you know. And I think with adults, it's the same thing. It's not that you get everything right, but that you're able to recover, repair, and make adjustments according to that and eventually find out what's going on you know and I think in a good relationship those windows or doors are open so that back and forth continues you know I think there's a saying in every relationship there's three relationships going on yeah tell me what they are there's the relationship you have with yourself the relationship I have with myself and then the relationship we have to with each other then absolutely the, well, the, I often use a similar metaphor in, in couples work which would be there's two things there's, there's a couple of things I can do I can help you to him I can help you to her or I can help your relationship and I'd often say in this room I'm going to be an advocate for your relationship so I'm going to say whatever it is I feel your relationship needs and I won't worry about your egos or whatever so if I need to challenge you to the husband I'll do it because I'll do it in the service of what's good for ye rather than what's good for you you know and it's a good thing to think about that what, what's good for you isn't always good for the relationship and so for that reason you have to make sacrifices you know so you have to go to the ballet with your wife not because you like going to the ballet because you realize going to the ballet is good for your relationship and that keeps things going you know so being able to see the third entity in a marriage or in a, an intimate relationship is i suppose vital really because that's what you're living for would it be true to say that if one of those relationships is out of balance affects the other two relationships absolutely um inevitably and i think in a healthy relationship rather than it waiting for it to go out of balance, it would be healthy to say that it's out of balance from the beginning, that, that we're all unstable in some ways and we're all trying to figure out how to be in the world. So rather than saying I'm comfortable with myself and I know who I am and this is who I am, it would be far more human to be able to say to your partner, I try to be the best person that I can be and I try to be true to myself, but 20% of the time I'm going to get it wrong and I'm going to say things that hurt you or I'm going to champion myself when I shouldn't and I'm going to get out of touch with myself and get driven by my need for control or dominance or all those kinds of things. So rather than waiting for it to happen, just to acknowledge it up front is probably the best thing. If there's anyone out there who's listening in now and they're going through a challenging relationship, would you have any advice to give them? The first thing I'd say would be that life is difficult and all intimate relationships are an ordeal. They aren't easy. So if you're experiencing a kind of an element of ordeal, then that's that, that's okay. That's part of it. However, you have to feel the other things too. That is, you, if you think back to the five things, you have to feel that somebody has your back, that you're encouraged to be the person you need to be, so that if you're struggling, that he or she is interested in what you have to say, even if it isn't nice or if it's challenging or even confronting of the other person. And if that isn't there, then you can tend to get isolated. The other thing would be talk to somebody. 
um, people very often are fearful of coming for marriage counselling or individual counselling but what I always say to people would be don't commit to anything but it's good to come in and talk to somebody and just kind of break the ice and just see might it suit or see is there anything there that might be of help you know and if you're struggling in an abusive relationship that can be very difficult because then what's gone in the relationship is respect and respect would be a respect for the for your dignity as a person and for your entitlement to have your opinions and to have your points of view and if you're not respected then anytime you try to be yourself you get dismissed or you're on the receiving end of some abuse or disregard or whatever so respect being absolutely vital you know do you think we're more happier now than we were say 40 or 50 years ago Colm? i think we probably are we go back 40 50 years ago, i suppose that in my own mind i was going back even to the turn of the century when there was there was an awful lot of suffering and an awful lot of pain and an awful lot of strife and even if you look back at photographs as i often do look back at old photographs at the turn of the century you look at the faces and you see a lot of suffering and i think in many ways the world has become a, a better place and i think there's more room for people to consider themselves you know and i think that's happening in intimate relationships too where again 100 200 years ago people got married for convenience or for reasons to do with property or all those kinds of things but I, th I think in the last hundred years, people realize that they get married for love and love having to do with happiness and that the sacrifice of oneself for a business or for a project other than oneself isn't necessary now like it was maybe a hundred years ago, you know. So you were saying about 40 or 50 years ago, I would think overall that people are, and I think a lot of the indices around wealth, health and happiness who suggested we are, but that probably is more in the in the Western world and in the privileged privileged world, and then in the third world or in the deprived world, there probably is little change, you know. And um, in that in those ways, so things like climate change conferences and all those kinds of things, and combating poverty and attending to um, poverty across the globe become more vital. And I think in the modern age with technology, we're more and more aware of it, whether we're more empathic or s sympathetic to it. Is another question, you know. How would you describe happiness? Happiness. Uh, James Joyce ha had a quote, which was to to be radiant in the sorrow of the world. That would be um, that the challenge of life is to acknowledge its adversities and its difficulties, but to somehow rise above them. And that happiness, in many ways, is your ability to overcome all the little and big adversities in life and sustain yourself because it's in many ways the whole human enterprise since the dawn of evolution is overcoming adversity it's overcoming little roadblocks the the people or the species that survive face a challenge and overcome it and there is a natural thing in every person that feels a certain amount of delight and happiness in overcoming even the smallest thing i have this little phrase i use on talking about children would be the i did it experience and children no matter what the situation love to turn to a parent or to somebody else and say i did it and you say what is it they built a castle or they put something in a row or they got something into a box or they closed the door properly or the the, the i did it thing is the thing in humanity that is reaching for a higher shelf and gets it gets it done and there's a certain contentment that comes in that kind of achievement there's another kind of happiness too that just comes from being comfortable in your own skin and being at peace in the world and letting go a lot of expectations and all the, the roles and responsibilities and just being able to rest into this, the sublime experience of just being alive. And I think that's what spirituality and mindfulness and even religion would have tried to do for people, which would be if you strip away everything, you can still sit on a rock in the middle of a field and actually experience the contentment that comes from just that sublime feeling of just existing which is in all of nature like a puppy dog or a, a kitten or a cat or a sheep in the field there's a contentment in nature that we all have you know and we can lose touch with it and it's like people who begin to let go of things or even um even people who let go of uh, that they're not as wealthy as they used to be or they let go of all their belongings or they go and live in isolation they discover gee i'm okay you know and people a lot of people would feel that on holidays they go away and they let go of all things and they might live in a little caravan or a hotel or whatever and they suddenly say, I don't need much really, you know. So that kind of happiness is inherent in us and we forget it. You think you need to prove it or there has to be a reason for your happiness. 
but just existing like the way uh, like a six month old or a one year old sitting in the pram is laughing away and what are they happy about they're just happy that they exist and it's wonderful and Colm what do you think stops us from experiencing that I think there's some very interesting research done now around what they call a depressive realism which would be that the more embedded you are in a literal life the more embedded you are in reality the more likely you are to become slightly depressed and I believe there's something in all of us and in human nature that needs to and does rise above reality uh, in certain ways and that that reflex in us to not just accept reality literally but to do something with it or about it is what is what elevates the human heart and the human spirit they've also done done some fascinating research around illusions and that happy people tend to live by life enhancing illusions happy happier people are not in touch with reality happy people misremember the past like if you ask a happy person about their childhood it'll be wonderful now literally it'll be no better than the depressed person next door but they they're they're not quite in touch with reality but that's what enables them to to survive it's the same in relationships that the couple they've done research on this couples that idealize the other person a bit and sustain that idealism tend to be much happier if they dealt with reality they might be a little bit more miserable you know so there's something magical and wonderful in human nature that says to reality f you i'm going to make something more out of this than really is there so reality is is black and white color is what you give it so you find and that's what inspiration is in life too inspiration or what inspires you is when you see somebody who's dealt a poor hand of cards and makes something of it that's hugely inspiring because i think it touches that thing in everybody who's doing the same so it's christmas this week and there's people walking up and down the streets outside making something more out of reality than really is there they're trying to lift it up they're trying to find something special and so they're struggling to get a present for somebody and what are they doing they're doing something heroic and they're doing something to, to as i say to lift it up i get this lovely feeling if i'm driving through the countryside and i see a christmas tree in a house in the middle of nowhere at a window and my heart lifts because that's just beautiful because somebody in a house is somehow celebrating life and giving it a little magic feel that it that it doesn't have in itself and they don't need other people to even see that tree lighting in their window the f- that the fact that they've done that has elevated themselves up so that's what i call enchantment too that you need to live a slightly enchanted life a slightly magical life that's a little bit removed from reality because that's what evolution has demanded that we do but going back to unhappiness if you're not doing that you're living in reality and the more embedded you are in reality the more depressive it is and the more the less control you feel you have so i think in some ways when you think of depression and even suicide the suggestion oh that person has lost touch with reality i think in many cases what's happened is they've become so embedded in reality that they've lost the imagination that keeps it going you know and that's what you see in children and you, you lose a little bit of the magic you know and so when people get overwhelmed with stress and debt and economics and work and, and all the literal things in life if you get embedded in that you have no direction to go other than just down into the ground and eventually feel like what's the point but happy people don't tend to be cynical so cynicism is a counterpoint to, to happiness as well so happier people tend to have a, a hopeful attitude that very often isn't deserved you know and you can very often meet elderly people who are in abject situations and they have this good cheer that is wonderful you know and that that connects in with a sense of humor i think one of the greatest spiritual virtues we have as a species or as humanity is a sense of humor and what's a sense of humor a sense of humor is something that says to reality f you reality i'm going to find something funny in this and you you find it and you 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 go away from a little humorous exchange with somebody even though it might be nothing other than talking to somebody at the counter of a shop and you go away and you're up a little bit and Gerald Benedict had this lovely uh quote around uh, Celtic spirituality and the old Celtic ways was that that it helps you just lift a couple of millimeters above the ground and you float along and there's the things you need because otherwise you're in deep trouble and what comes to mind for me there comes as well is developing that creative part of yourself as well is very important absolutely absolutely and creativity comes from imagination and what is imagination if you think about imagination and the definition of imagination is the is the ability to think of something that doesn't exist in reality 
So animals don't have it, um, but the human developed imagination, and the whole human brain is an imagining brain. So your your place in the world isn't to think, it isn't to problem solve, it actually is to imagine. So we're imagining beings, but we're trapped in the mortal body, and that's the dilemma of the, the human person. But everybody walking around the streets today, they're all living in their imagination. They're living above and beyond reality, and that's what keeps them kind of going forward. But to imagine things that don't exist, I give the example of early people. When you go back to the dawn of humanity, at some point people came to a river and they said, I can't cross this river, and they'd have to walk miles to find a place that they could cross. At some point, somebody imagined a bridge. Now, a bridge didn't exist in reality, but somebody came up with this thing that didn't exist in reality, but they brought it into reality. And I think civilization is the ability to imagine things that don't exist and make them exist. That's what clothes are and shoes are. And somebody at some point said, I'm hurting my feet. I, I can imagine something that covers them. So that's all the little ways. But then in everyday life, what sustains you is your imagination. And it isn't your logical, scientific brain that's solving things. It's that part of you that can embellish reality with something that makes it feel a bit better. And a sense of humour is exactly that. How important is being present part of that happiness? Being present is an interesting one. There's a lot of talk now about mindfulness. And mindfulness is being present in the present moment and being uh, being non-judgmental about the presence and being able to stay there and not be distracted by things attending to your breathing, attending to your sensations, attending just to the flow of things through your life. But that's not enough to live. Um, mindfulness really is goes against evolution in some sense. If we all became mindful, nothing would happen. A cow standing in a field is mindful. In fact, the the... The epitome of mindfulness is a cow standing in a field doing nothing other than experiencing its sensations. Now, the cow isn't aware of it, but it, like if you take mindfulness to its extreme, you, you lose your, your imagination. So mindfulness has to be married to what I call mind flight, which would be the ability also to not be in the present moment, to be above and beyond it. And that's what's enabled humanity to survive and evolve. If you weren't able to live for the above and the beyond, there'll be no evolution, you just stay stuck, there'll be no need to change. And I think a good definition of humanity is the, the, the urge in a species to be other than what it is. And that's what enables evolution, everybody's striving to be a bit more. And that thing, in that human effort that you see everywhere, as I give the example of people just walking up and down the street, shopping things, everybody's trying their best to be a bit better than they are. Nobody's just accepting life passively and sitting at home with their doors closed and their minimum provisions. People don't live to survive. The, the, the thing about humanity is survival isn't enough. We want to make something of it. And that's what makes us wonderful. So mindfulness is great, but it has to be balanced with mind flight. The ability of the, to lift up and go for above and beyond. All ancient mythology is full of metaphors of flight. We want to fly, you know, and it's, it's a metaphor for how the human spirit wants to go. You see it everywhere. Most school emblems have an image of a bird. And you say, Why is what's, the, what's the thing about a bird? Why isn't it a fish or a dog? Or, because a bird gives, uh, creates a sense that we can get up and out of reality and be above it. And it touches into a very basic drive in human nature to do exactly that. So we do it in the big scheme of things in culture and art, but we do it in our everyday life too by trying our best to do our best and to be more than what we are. It is said, Colum, that all unhappiness is the result of comparisons. Do you think this is true? That's an old Buddhist idea, which was comparisons are odious, which would be as soon as you compare yourself to somebody else, you've lost touch with your, you've lost touch with your own thing, then you get into a competitive thing. So there's a, gr there's a great deal of truth in that, and in some way the, the comparing of yourself with your neighbour or your siblings or others uh, gets you on a wrong track. And I think the, the Buddhist ideal would be to be present to yourself and present to your own existence and being more mindful of who and what you are. So, uh, yeah, comparisons are odious, I think is the term. Does anyone out there say, and they're struggling to be happy, would you have any advice to give them? There's advice everywhere. I think we live in an age where the, the, we're, we're smothered with advice. It's like you go into bookshops, you have 50 books on how to be happy. You listen to the radio every day, somebody else telling you how to do it. And there's just too much, really. I think that we're living in an age of information to the point of where information has lost its meaning. 
and try to even look on the internet you'll find any little page to give you the top tips to be happy you forget them after 20 seconds you don't remember what they are the simplest thing I would say to people would be to believe that underneath the layers of unhappiness that you're feeling as I was saying earlier there's something absolutely innate in you that is happy that is the the the, the one-year-old that was there when you were one and the two-year-old it's he or she is still in there you've just lost touch with him or her and if you if you can peel away the layers and remember who you are and you are the same person you were when you were two weeks old six months old two years old you're still the same person and that person is happy so it's not a case about finding happiness out there to do the right thing but maybe digging down a little bit and remembering that there's a person in there that's you that's separate from all your achievements and all your relationships that wants to be and is capable of being content in the world even if you're just standing in a field in the middle of nowhere the sublime experience of being alive is accessible to you would that be in the form of connecting to your authentic self column if i was talking to somebody it would be a little bit of connecting with with, with something like that it's a lovely thing to look back over old photographs and you begin to look back and say oh my god where's the time gone but you also look back and you remember the person in the photograph and it's, and it's, and it's, and the thing would be not to remember that person in the photograph as being another person but to remember that person that's still you you know you're still you're still the same person and one of the lovely things about life is there is that continuity of that authentic self there is a narrative in your life where you're still the same you can remember things from your childhood like they happened yesterday and that's still there you know so accessing your authentic self would be accessing the part of you that was there long before you built up this big construct of roles responsibilities and everything and when you're happy you find that happening you revert a little bit to the childlike quality in you or you laugh or you relax and you say oh i remember this feeling you know and it's in there do you think as a society that we encourage people to be their true selves i think it's difficult i think it's very difficult i think as i said with that that overflow of information and technology and uh comparisons and things all sorts of possibilities everywhere life has certainly got more complex and i think because of that there's more temptations to the mind to think about how things could be different and in some ways the authentic self probably is at its best when it isn't in that kind of environment and maybe has less choices or less options and living in a more simple kind of way you probably have more access to that authentic self but again, there's two ways of looking at society. It's easy to be cynical as well. It's easy to be cynical about the world and technology and the world is getting worse and there's war and there's blah, blah, blah. But also the counter-argument is equally valid, which would be to say to yourself, actually, things are getting better or actually, life is good or actually, my life is better than I want to acknowledge. And th again, a positive slant on things can free you up a little bit because cynicism and despair is a very easy option in fact i find that in my work with couples and families cynicism is often very lazy you know it, it because it can it can give you an excuse not to do anything while a certain level of hope or optimism is a challenge because it means you have to respond so it's easy to say affect that or there's no point or the world is getting worse or my relationship is going nowhere or I've failed in all my dreams or whatever that's that's lazy and it can be good to challenge yourself too to think that uh, hope is still there would that be your like your beliefs column yeah I think I think there are core beliefs we have that can go back to our own life too but there are also attitudes you can develop in response to adversity too which is turning left into negativity or right into to, to something more optimistic so I suppose it's, it's a bit of, a bit of both it's a and like say if a person has a particular challenging situation in their life they may have a like a misfortune or even say have a disability how could they turn that into an opportunity or a blessing in their lives i couldn't tell anybody how to do that but I, what i would say would be as i said that uh, as i've been saying the most magnificent trait of the human being since the dawn of humanity is the ability of humanity to do exactly that to turn a disability into a blessing you see it all the time with people who have encountered that kind of thing to move from grief into a sense of possibility to face tragedy and to overcome it i can't tell anybody how to do it no more than i can tell myself how to do it but there's something in the body that does it and i've often felt too when you're struggling in life it's good to 
expose yourself to the stories and narratives and books of people who've been through that. When I was in my early years working as a therapist, I worked a lot of sexual abuse and I realized I don't know anything about this, you know. So I began to devour and read stories of people who would, because I needed some reference point in my own life that I was able to say to somebody, yes, it is possible, you know, that you can get through this. When I was growing up as a youngster, I didn't have that, you know. So I didn't, so... So it takes for people to expose themselves to that sense of possibility. And as I say, that's why people all over the world love to see a movie where a tragedy or a misfortune is overcome. In fact, every movie that you see or every book that's ever been written or every myth that's ever been created, they're all saying the same story, which is life will throw shit and difficulty with you, but there is a way through. And at the end of it, things do work out. So every fairy story that was told to a child, the story was always a story of something was somebody was born, life was good, and something terrible happened, and then somehow they dealt with it and they lived happily ever after. And the child is told the story over and over again that tragedy and misfortune are inevitable, but the nature of human life is that somehow you'll get get through it, you know. And that's all th- all the stories since the dawn of humanity are saying the same thing. It's a story of hope, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and that that would be a written about heroism. You know that the 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 the, the urge in humanity toward the heroic is universal, and it's what is the survival of the human species. And if you look at all those refugees marching from Syria right across Europe, they're driven by a heroic belief in possibility. You know, and all those ships that went down in the Mediterranean, those ships weren't filled with poor people; they were filled with hope. So it was hope that gets people into those things. And also the tragedies ensue, but the drive in the human person for something more or to overcome, as I say, it's in every fairy story, it's in every dream you have, it's in every movie you watch, all telling you the same thing. So going back to what you were saying about what do you say to somebody who's experiencing disability or tragedy or grief or bereavement, there's, there's nothing to say other than the story of civilization and humanity is that this happens to us all and we overcome it. And the ultimate tragedy that everybody has to face is their own inevitable death. And that's what we all avoid too. But getting back to your earlier question, to be able to acknowledge that you're going to die is to be able to acknowledge that life itself is tragic. It has a tragic end. Despite all your great ambitions and all your hard work and all your building yourself up and all the books you write, you're decaying and you're going to disappear and people will have forgotten you within 100 years. And it's like a slap in the face or it's like an insult. And it is tragic but as I say, that isn't the end of it. What humanity did is, you give me tragedy, I'm going to make something out of this. I'm going to turn it into something different. So that's what, the, so people overcame oppression, they overcame violence, they stood up for something, they strive for something beyond reality. And that's what's wonderful. That's what Christmas is all about. It's humanity saying, you're giving us the dead of winter, we're going to have a party. That's fantastic. Tying in with your latest book column called The Awakening, what do you think stops us from living our lives to the full? The awakening for me in the book is, in Irish, is which is awakening to two things. Awakening to the fact that you exist. And that's sublime. If you're aware that you exist, what it, what it prompts is awe. That is, I'm, I'm alive in this extraordinary, magnificent universe. And the pleasure of just being alive, the privilege of it, is awesome. It also the awakening is also the awakening of dread, and as we were speaking about the terror of death, so you also awaken to the fact that you're helpless, you're mortal, and you're not driving the bus. You're a, you're a passenger, and that creates dread and terror. So you have two you have two experiences: awe and wonder, and terror and fear, and it's how you find the balance between both. And unless you're able to acknowledge the the terror and the fear, the awe and the wonder become superficial, you know. So like having both is what enables us to live more fully terrorism like we live in we live in an age of terrorism at the moment and like the terror of death is what all the existential philosophers would have written about but it's a good word terrorism because it is to strike terror into people and the terror strikes into people is there's only one terror and that's the terror of death and if if you're not afraid of death and bob geldof said this on tv there recently if you're not afraid of death terror has no power they're powerless but but it's so easy to agitate a terror of death and helplessness that can create panic. But somewhere in the middle of that panic, people also can be still. And the still is an awareness that I don't need to be afraid, you know. 
and hopefully the responses to all of this will be guided by wisdom and uh, awareness rather than terror working. Now I've gone away off your question which I've forgotten what it was. What do you think stops us from living our lives to the full? Well I think following on from that I was going in the right direction. Uh, I think it would be uh, vulnerability. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan theologian, was asked uh, a question that if he had the attention of the entire world for one minute, what would he talk about? Uh, it was a very interesting question. And what he said was, ultimately, he said he wouldn't talk about love. He wouldn't say, do not be afraid or all that kind of He'd talk about vulnerability. And I felt he was absolutely spot on because vulnerability to me is the heart of humanity. And when you lose touch with your vulnerability, you go in one of two directions. You become righteous and fundamentalist and arrogant or you become uh, terrified and fearful and you withdraw from society. But if you can inhabit your vulnerability, and that is be able to say, life is difficult, life is tough, I'm doing my best. I don't have a hold on truth or a hold on reality, or nor do I know what the right thing to do is, but I try. And what that does is it generates compassion. And compassion is I'm able to meet someone, they're different than me, and I don't feel that I, my way is better than theirs. I say, I'm a vulnerable person and this is what I believe. You do and you believe something different. So when you take flight from vulnerability, then you're into, as I say, fundamentalism, r righteousness. And that then is the origin of evil. And evil really is the belief that one's view of the world is the correct one. And that the way to do and that anybody who disagrees with it has to be degraded or diminished. And you see that that's happened with all the religions when they become extreme. It would be, we, we know what's right, this is what the truth is, there's something wrong with you for for not believing in it. And again, going back to centuries, people being persecuted for those beliefs, ISIS being an example of it, resurfacing now. And I think even in Christianity, some of the churches would have gone off into a kind of a righteous fundamentalism and lost touch with the whole purpose of their being in the uh, first place, which would have arisen out of a vulnerability in the world and a response to human suffering. And all all great religions across the world are about what you do with suffering and pain. That's what it's all about. But once that's lost, then you get into this kind of scary righteousness. But going back to the main point, holding on to your vulnerability and connecting with people because of it is what creates compassion and what enables the, the world to work, really. Colm, if we're all going to die, what do you think our purpose for actually being here on Earth actually is? That's a huge question. <laughs> I think our purpose on earth is to is to be able to acknowledge that, really acknowledge it and take on board that we're all going to die and then defy it by celebrating that the life that you have because of it and the sacredness of that life because of the fact that there is death and that then becomes wonderful and that's played out all the time. I, I see kids that play, I see a little fellow playing in the park down in Ballancolig and he scores a goal and he turns around and his arm is in the air and he's done it. And in his mind he scored a goal, but his whole body is responding and saying, I've defied I've defied reality, I've risen above it, you know, and that everywhere, every day, people are doing that, you know. So the, the, the redemption of humanity is the acceptance of death and the experience of death itself and its vulnerability and being able to turn toward life then and seeing the sacred and the wonderful and the beautiful in it because of it and that's the tr true origin of religion do you think there's anything we can learn from our irish ancestors to bring more truth and happiness into our lives i love our celtic mythology and our celtic heritage and all those things because if you f if you could bring yourself back if anybody listening to this is full of their own thoughts and full of science and information and how they know things if you're stripped of all the securities like your status your job, your employment, all the institutions you rely on, all the things you lean on, if you're stripped of all those things and you're left standing kind of literally naked in the world, you will start doing what our ancient ancestors did in pre-Celtic and early Celtic times. You'll start creating gods. You'll start creating rituals that help you cope with the terror of existence and the love of the life that you have. And you'll f find yourself starting to create all those magical rituals that enable people to survive so all the enchanting stories of early Irish mythology they're all infused with the magic and if you listen to them literally you'd say they're doing, they're doing literal magic they weren't it really was just saying that life was always infused not just with tragedy and suffering that there was something magical that kept people going you know and so all that magical stuff is not magic in the sense of airy fairy nonsense it's humanity's ways of giving expression to 
helplessness, wonder, the majesty of life, the terror of death, and giving it, personifying it in a god. So the, the ancient Celtic gods, of which there were many, were really personifications of all the entities and forces on which humanity depends, but giving it a form. And everybody's the same. And when I see things happening nowadays where they're thinking of getting rid of religion out of schools and all that kind of thing, I'm saying, people don't get it. They think religion is, ab is about beliefs, when really it's uh, uh, an essential urge in all of humanity to give expression to our helplessness in the universe. And that's what religion does. And to get rid of it and turn towards science is to miss the point entirely. So it's tragic. Kids in school should be learning religion, they should be learning mythology, they should be learning poetry, all these things that are at the heart of life. And to go towards the, the three R's, get rid of religion and make everything secular, is to completely miss the boat, I think, about what life is and what it's about. You, know? you mentioned there about rituals. Can you just tell me a little bit about that column? Well, in the early Celtic times and in the pre-Celtic times, if you read any of the ancient mythologies or... Um, the, the Celtic ritual, like rituals would be behaviours or things that people did on a repetitive basis in order to soothe themselves in the face of the terror of life or to give life a meaning it didn't have in itself. So the earliest kind of rituals would be burial rituals. So somewhere along the line, a family were walking along, somebody died, and for the first time in history there was somebody who said, I'm not just going to leave the body there. Come on, we go back. And they put rocks around it, and they put a few leaves around it. And it was uh, the ritual was a way of giving expression to something sacred in life that needed to be done in order to give their life a meaning and a purpose. But we're all engaged in rituals. We all engage in things, and we do things repetitively, and we do things the same way every day. And we think it's just habit, but actually it's soothing. And why? And all those things are done because at a level that you're not even aware of, you're actually terrified. That's the terror of death that's in all of creation. You don't even feel it, but you do all these things that make you feel secure and safe in the world. And you don't realize it until somebody begins to get in the way of it, you know, or somebody stops you. You look at road rage, you even w observe your own behavior driving. Like if somebody stops you or pulls you in front of you, the irritation people feel, or you, you don't even feel yourself, you have to do the psychology of it. Say, What's happening? Why am I getting annoyed? You're getting annoyed because something is interfering with what you think is a ritual. And something is blocking something that enables you to feel safe and secure in the world. But we all need rituals, and religious rituals would all have been ways of trying to give expression to, as I say, the forces and entities that we don't even begin to understand, and converting them into an action or into a symbol or into an icon. So it becomes a cross or it becomes a, a Buddhist symbol. But they're, they're symbols of something that you can't explain. Colm, can you tell me a little bit about how we can inhabit a vertical and a horizontal life? Well, I use that image of horizontal and vertical, which I borrowed from the Celtic cross. And the, the, if you look at a cross, Carl Jung said that the, the image of the cross is an, a universal image that we would lose at our peril, not in terms of Christianity, but that a cross in some way symbolizes a human existence, that one part of you is living a horizontal life, or anybody listen to this, your you, you list of things to do, you have your job, your responsibilities, and you've just got your head down and you're doing what you're supposed to do. At a vertical level then, there's something else going on, which would be you're in tune with your existence, you're in tune with life and death, and you realise there's something far more important happening than just going through the motions. So integrating a vertical life or a spiritual life or a soulful life or a mindful life with a horizontal life is what all the great world religions are get, wanting people to do is kind of wake up to something more going on and that's the challenge and right at the middle of the cross if you can imagine it it's like the x and the y axis right at the middle would be what i call the burning point and the burning point is where your everyday life has a vertical meaning where everything you're doing has a purpose other than just survival so and that's the case with anybody with you or with me with anybody in your family you ask people why they're doing what they're doing they aren't doing it just to survive. They're doing it because they're wanting to give their lives a meaning. They're wanting to experience a sense of specialness in the world. They're wanting to give something to other people. They're wanting to enhance life in some way. They're wanting to illuminate it, lift it up. So that's always going on. So if you lose touch with the vertical, then you become embedded in reality. So it's like continuing finding a way to wake up. And we all need rituals, practices, people around us that help us to do that. And you all know that feeling of meeting with somebody who helps you to do that. It could be a friend, a mentor, somebody you just love to meet. Because you love meeting them because they wake you up 
and you kind of go and you go away from having met them a little bit better than you were before you met them and they get you a little bit vertical but religion faith spirituality philosophy poetry all those kinds of things that, that get you a vertical and get you to appreciate what you're really doing is vital and the Celtic Cross is a lovely image of that Colin it reminds me of a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl how important is for people to have that meaning and purpose in their lives it's absolutely vital and Frankl's wonderful narrative of his experience in the concentration camps in Germany where he survived was that he discovered that there were peoples in the concentration camps who were all facing the same end their own extinction and some people somehow maintained their dignity even though they wore those uniforms, they maintained them well. They might have d- tried to look well. They would have had a, their rations and they would have shared their last piece of ration with somebody that seemed hungrier than they were. They would have somehow brought a dignity to what was the, the most humiliating and degrading and horrific of circumstances. So the ability of people to do that everywhere is what makes life possible. And Frankl's whole idea was that the, the purpose of living, like I said before, is to try to be more than you are. And his, his phrase is, if you try to be more than you are, then you become what you're capable of becoming. If you just accept what you are, you'll become less. So it goes back to that whole idea of striving for more, and, and meaning is all created in your imagination. So you can be thrown into any abject circumstances, and you need not be just a victim. You can participate in some way and do something with it. I think all great psychology is about the very simple distinction between something happening to you and the interpretation you give to it. And they're two very different things. If you just look at something happening, then you just become a victim. Your interpretation means you respond to it. And we all have that possibility. That's what Viktor Frankl was all about. And that's what a vertical life is about as well. The research has proven that people who have this meaning and purpose in their lives, they actually live a lot longer as well. Of course, I would believe it. It would be, we all live by, and this is where enchantment comes in, we live by life-enhancing illusions. That would be illusions of being able to survive and thrive. So happier, older people think they're younger than they are. They've done the research on that. So it goes back to my earlier point, would be certain kinds of illusions that enable you to give life a meaning that it doesn't really have in itself is what lifts you up. So a person in a concentration camp who somehow finds a little purpose in it, did something that helped them survive. Elderly people who who might be 85 but but think they're about 65, they'll thrive. You know, you might say deal with reality, but we're not supposed to deal with reality. If you came across somebody with a chronic illness, you wouldn't dream of saying to them, "Give up, no point, just give up, fold your tent." What's the point? You wouldn't do that because you realise that the illusion that keeps people going is vital, and it's illusion that all of humanity needs. And you admire the person who, in the face of adversity, says, "Fact that." I'm living like I'm going to live forever. And that's wonderful. If anyone doesn't have this same meaning or purpose in their lives at the moment, is there a way they can actually create that in their lives for themselves? I think probably one of the best ways is dialogue. That Again, isolation, is, isolation isn't good for creativity and imagination. And the work I do, which would be in counselling and therapy, it actually is a, is a wonderful place to begin to activate one's own imagination and to exas- access things in oneself and in one's life that have been lost and have seemed have seemed like they're buried, you know. So the experience of telling a story, of being with somebody who understands that, and of doing a little bit of mining, as it were, it's like mining for the bits of gold in your own life, you, you very often need help with that because when you become too introverted or too self-reflective, you can lose a certain perspective. And that's the wonderful thing about relationships or having a mentor in your life who can sometimes see things that you can't see for yourself you know so if you're feeling that talk to somebody because we're that's what we're meant to be doing you know engaging with other people because it opens up a little glimmer of possibility a little glimmer of hope and out of conversation and narrative something can begin to happen and if anybody wants to say contact you or even find out more about your work how could they do it Cullum? I'm getting very modern. I have a website, drcolumoconnor.com. It's not up to speed. I also work at the Cork Marriage and Family Counseling Centre in Paul Street. Uh, You can find that on the web as well. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. Tune in next week for more exciting and interesting topics and guests in the areas of spirituality, relationships, finance, creativity, health, career and much, much more. 
In the meantime, check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash the Hellstone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Hellstone or log on to our website www.thehellstoneshow.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Hellstone Show delivered to your inbox every week and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com. Well, until next week, have a fantastic, healthy and happy week. Thank you.